The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome everyone to One Hour at a Time. This is John McAndrew, your guest host. And today our guest is Dr. Michael Grote from the, from the Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas. And uh, Dr. Grode is the director of Menninger's adult divisions, also serves as assistant professor the Menninger Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, Baylor College of Medicine. He received his master's at Miami University, his doctorate at State University of New York in Albany, and he interned there as well, um, completed a four-year clinical psychology fellowship in psycho dynamic psychotherapy, family therapy, and systems consultations at the Austin Riggs Center, and we're going to talk about that. That's in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. Um, Dr. Grote's interests right now are concerning mentalizing informed treatments, personality assessment, suicide resilience, and therapeutic communities. Those are a lot of big words. And Welcome to our show, Michael. Yes, thank you, John. We, to be here. we appreciate you taking time. And, and we had first, when we had met at the APA last year, we talked about, in particular, the research that you're doing at Menninger, a paper that you wrote, which really was a result of a lot of your experience in this field about attachment style and treatment completion among people that have a psychiatric and a substance use disorders or dual diagnosis, and we'll kind of get that to that later in the show. And can you tell us about what you do at at the Menninger Clinic? Because um, we know it's one of the it's always ranked in the top five best hospitals in the country again this year. Sure. U.S. News and World Report ranked you in the top five, mm-hmm. like the twenty fifth consecutive year. So. Mm-hmm. You're working at a very high level there at Manninger. Why don't you tell us about what you do there? Sure. I'll be happy to. And thank you again for uh, the privilege and opportunity to be here today on your show. You're welcome. Um, you know, here at the Manninger Clinic, I do uh, several things. Uh, one is I'm involved in the direct clinical care of patients. I uh, do assessments, and I also am involved in leading several patient groups, Mm-hmm. Um, so I developed a group that I call the Suicide Resilience Group, and we can talk about that a little bit later, but it looks at treating the kind of despair and desperation that leads us human beings to consider uh, suicide. Um, and I also lead groups that just deal in general with uh, ap- applying what we know from research on attachments and how we form close attachments and the importance of uh, close attachments for our mental health. Uh, I teach a number of courses on that for patients, and I also am involved in training and supervising uh, many of our uh, trainees. 
we have fellows that come from all over, all over the United States uh, for training, and I'm involved in uh, teaching them. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, I have my administrative responsibilities overseeing two of the largest uh, adult inpatient units here at the Medical Clinic, and I also oversee our adult outpatient uh, clinic. So I'm very involved with outpatient, or outpatient and inpatient care for adults. And then plus the research work. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. When you find time, right? I find time, yes. I, uh, will, I, I collaborate with uh, a number of my colleagues here and doing a variety of different research projects. I'm working on a few now. Um, <clears throat> and I have worked on a few in the past that particularly look at the relationship between you know, attachment style and uh, therapeutic outcome. You know, one of the things that we're very interested in here in, at the Menager Clinic, which pertains to hospitals and, and clinics across the country, is, you know, how do you form a good relationship with someone who's coming to you for help? Uh, because we know that the longer, generally speaking, that someone is in treatment and is able to complete a treatment process, the more successful um, he or she will be. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that relationship we form with people is critically important and uh, people come here and they stay an average of six to eight weeks, which is longer than uh, most psychiatric hospitals that exist today. Uh, and so given that amount of time, we get an opportunity to spend time with people and, and form uh, important relationships with them. For the layperson, which I am one, um, could you explain to me uh, mm-hmm. what attachment and attachment styles are and how you focus on that? Sure. Mm-hmm. I think the, the best thing to say about it is that, you know, attachments uh, are a pre-wired um, need that we all have as human beings. So really we're talking about a human need mm-hmm. you know, over time and trying to study what makes us human. Um, one of the things that we've learned over time is that you look at mammals and you look at the primates and look at young children, um, you will see that um, young children in particular really look to their parent to provide a sense of safety, a sense of security, and provide uh, for their general needs, for clothing, for shelter, and for food, as well as uh, the sense of emotional safety. When I'm potentially threatened by something, who do I turn to for uh, assurance and reassurance? So the work on attachment really began with looking at um, various kinds of mammals and what we noticed were the ways that they would bond with caregivers. And uh, the same thing has been observed in infants and young children. And what we know now is that attachment bonds are important for humans throughout the entire lifespan. And in fact, the thing that's most compelling to me uh, to me about it is that attachments and forming safe and secure attachments, and by that I mean the sense that I can go to someone when I'm in distress mm-hmm. and feel like my distress is going to be responded to empathically, it's going to be safe to share my distress, and that someone is going to actually respond in a way that is attuned to my needs that kind of experience, if it happens well enough and good enough, it's not necessarily perfect, but if it happens well enough, it fosters confidence, or we might call that trust, a sense of trust that other people have my back when things are getting difficult. And uh, that matters a lot to little kids, 
and it actually matters a lot to adults. And in fact, one thing we've learned is that that those attachment bonds that are safe and secure are the most efficient way neurobiologically and psychologically for us to manage stress. So if we know that we're part of a network of people who have our back and we can trust and turn to, um, that is actually enormously protective uh, for us as human beings, Uh, whether you're an infant or you're an 80-year-old person. uh, Those bonds really, really matter. And attachment style deals with um, how we might describe the nature of that bond. So what we've learned over time is that that bond can range from very safe and secure, knowing we have someone has our back, we can turn to and we can trust, to uh, feeling very insecure and not really having the confidence that we have anyone to turn to or that if we turn to someone, uh, it might turn out really poorly. And we can anticipate that... Uh, Others won't be there to meet our needs. And that kind of insecurity, uh, what we've learned is that it develops in relationship to experiences where, you know, um, we've been let down a lot. And so that kind of learning history is something we all bring to relationships. And uh, when you think about treatment, you know, people bring their history of attachments to treatment and Uh, that kind of history matters because it affects the kinds of relationships that people will form or have difficulty forming with treaters uh, while they're in recovery. Uh That's how it links. In the assessment process, how do you, uh, you you told us you're involved in that, uh, and now I, I understand more why because this is very important, the attachment piece. How do you assess that in a, in a new patient that comes to Menninger? Sure. Uh, well, that, there's a few different ways. It's, you know, we use kind of multiple modalities. I mean, one is <clears throat> the actual experience of interviewing and sitting down and talking with someone. Mm-hmm. Uh, during that experience, we can uh, review with them, for example, uh, their history of relationships, going back to when they were a kid and what their relationships were like growing up with their parents and caregivers, their sense that they had people to turn to, how that went. Um, and what their experiences are like uh, as an adult. And in addition to those interviews, we, can, we have some measures that we use. One is called the Relationship Questionnaire. This is a self-report measure that allows someone to look at some prototypes that describe um, attachments. So you can have a little paragraph that describes somebody who would experience a sense of safety and security, and when the, when the chips are down, I have someone to turn to and I can trust to uh, a prototype that describes somebody who feels not only are they lacking in confidence in their their ability to manage, but they also lack confidence anyone can really be there for them. And so people endorse the degree to which those prototypes describe their experiences, and from that uh, we can get a sense of how they think about their attachments to other people, and that's a very useful measure that's actually very easy to administer. We administer to all of our patients when they come in. Um, So from everyone, we have a a kind of a snapshot uh, of how they think about their their attachment pattern and attachment style, how they think about attachments. And then uh, another way we learn about uh, attachment style is observation. And, you know, as a treatment team, 
you know, we have several people on the treatment team, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a social worker, a therapist, um, a nurse, addictions counselor, a rehab specialist, uh, the, the chaplain, all these individuals interacting with a given person will have their own experiences. And so that experience can range from um, I feel pushed away, I feel as if uh, this person is really trying to shut me out and not really let me in. Right. Can give us some data on how they approach relationships and how they approach um, you know, managing uh, distress. And in fact, there's an attachment style called the avoidant dismissive, which actually is just that. People will try to deny and minimize their need for others and adopt a more uh, distant uh, way of connecting, especially around distress, and actually may hide that distress and, and not really show people the true nature of how distressed they are. Uh-huh. So we can learn about this through you know, the interviewing process, some, some measures, as well as observation. And then we have some specialized psychological testing that we can do that helps uh, further uh, illuminate you know, how people think about uh, attachment. Right. The paper we're going to talk about today, and we may get to that in the next segment, that, that was in the American Journal on Addictions, that, that you and a couple of uh, your friends at Menninger did the research yes. on the attachment style and treatment completion among psychiatric inpatients with <laughs> substance use disorders. And I'm just going to read something real quick here. It says basically that early termination from treatment contributes to limited benefit and reduced cost effectiveness. That's right. of psychiatric services, basically, when you get pulled too soon, and I know this attachment piece is very important to that, and uh, we're going to go away from break, uh, for a break here in just a minute, and I wanna, I'm going to ask you when you come back, Michael, about your experience at Austin Riggs, because uh, there's a place where the patients are, were treatment-resistant. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. You work with patients and family Mm-hmm. And I want to hear from you when we come back from break, sort of how, to, how you experienced and watched this, uh, the effect of attachment and how it affected those patients there. We'll be back in just a minute with Dr. Michael Grote from the Menninger Clinic. Listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Tune in every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel for Eat Well to Live Well with Kelly Hill. Kelly covers our relationship with food and teaches us how easy eating well and living well can be taking us on a weekly food journey, guiding us to a more rich and vibrant life. 
So tune in every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel for Eat Well to Live Well with Kelly Hill. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back. We've been talking to Dr. Michael Grote of the Menninger Clinic. I want to tell everybody again that U.S. News and World Report ranks Menninger as in the top five hospitals in the United States for difficulty for difficult psychiatric cases. And uh, here's a little quote here I want to read, Michael, from the book. Psychiatrists surveyed surveyed recognized the benefits of their patients of Menninger's combination of comprehensive assessment, evidence-based treatments, clinical specialists, supportive patient community, and a healing environment. Mm-hmm. Um, Menninger is one of the best in the United States and probably uh, in the world, and uh, we really appreciate your spending time with us today. When we left off, you gave me a good Description, uh, description of attachment and how important that is. And mm-hmm. in your bio, you, it's mentioned that you worked, uh, you did a four, four-year fellowship mm-hmm. at Austin Riggs Center in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. And I know that they, they treat patients that are treatment resistant. They treat mm-hmm. uh, yes. personality disorders. It's mm-hmm. really uh, um, quite a place for. Uh, Mm-hmm. It's, it's very unique. So tell us about your experiences there and what you brought from there to this research that you did recently. Sure. That's a great question. Um, well, I think there are a few things. Um, you know, I went to Riggs to learn a more intensive, longer-term way of working with people with very serious uh, psychiatric and co-occurring disorders, substance use problems, eating disorders, uh, many of whom also had trauma histories. And uh, there are a few important lessons uh, I learned there. Um, I'll just kind of summarize that. I mean, one is that I learned the importance of the relationship and how for many of the folks who came to Riggs for help, um, the relational piece was one that was extraordinarily complicated. And, you know, this issue of attachment and trust was really central for, for many patients. Um, the anticipation for many of them was that you know, relationships were futile endeavors, um, that one would be met with uh, a lack of response or, or potentially be met with malevolence or be met with um, even violence in some cases or something rather destructive. And so uh, forming a relationship with the patient and working to understand and sit side by side with them and looking at um, you know, what contribute to difficulties forming, lasting, sustaining, and nurturing relationships was, for many people, uh, the heart of the work. And uh, I think what 
the focus on relationships at RIGS uh, served as a powerful corrective to approaches that looked at reduction of symptoms alone. Um, I, I think it's very easy uh, within medicine and various aspects of medicine to look at symptoms such as, you know, I come into my doctor's office and I'm talking about I have a low mood and yeah. uh, I'm having trouble sleeping, et cetera. And those symptoms are important and they have to be attended to and I think there are signs of distress. Um, and I think those symptoms need to be looked at in the context of the person and their relationship history and how those symptoms make sense in light of relationships. And uh, that was one very powerful learning that I experienced at Riggs um, and the issue of meaning, the, the, the function of symptoms. So we take uh, something like substance use and how we might turn to, uh, someone might turn to heroin or, or alcohol or some other substance. You know, what function does that serve? Um, what was the person, what problem was the person trying to solve uh, by using that substance? And uh, using that understanding as uh, kind of leverage to uh, help people understand themselves better and make different kinds of choices. Um, and the other uh, piece was learning about, you mentioned the idea of systems consultation, learning about the person in the context of a family and uh, community and uh, all of us, none of us exist as islands, um, even though we might try to you know, isolate ourselves, that, you know, people became ill in the context of uh, their own kind of genetic history in terms of their literal physical genes, but also genetic history in terms of what they've inherited from their families, uh, what they've learned, for example, what they've learned about expressing emotion and is it okay to express emotion? Is it okay to reach out for help if I'm in distress or do I keep it to myself? Uh, you know, family cultures vary in terms of, you know, I, you know, the families that keep the stiff upper lip to the families that have difficulty regulating emotion and become really chaotic and mm -hmm. dysregulated. So, you know, thinking about individuals in the context of a family was very important. And so I bring with me to Menninger learning about the importance of the relationship learning about the function of behaviors ranging from self-harm to suicidality to substance use, and uh, learning to really look at people in a context. And integrated. I know the evidence-based practices for dual diagnosis that family is very, very important in yes. Yes. going I through recovery. I think family is very important and essential in that lasting and recovery um, really, I think, best occurs with the family and all of them working together to understand the, uh, the role that someone has taken up in a family, why they're in that particular role, what function it serves for the family system, and what kind of shifts can be made to help the whole family function in a more healthy way. Now, is the family, uh, is that a good model for attachment? And, for example, uh, for the people that, have substance use disorders, uh, the 12-step community, um, the relationships they have in there with, uh, let's say, a sponsor or a spiritual advisor. Are, the, are all those attachment models that you've seen to be important? Yes, and I'll kind of break it down into those different, those different areas. So regarding family, you know, one thing we do know is that in the context of a family, there can be a variety of attachment kind of patterns. So 
in relationship to a particular caregiver in one's family, one parent, you know, one may experience that parent as attuned and generally responsive and someone they can turn to uh, for help as needed, and then somebody else may be much less trustworthy. And so you adapt in relationship to that person. You may not bring things to them. You may keep it to yourself. And um, so I think there can be variation uh, within the context of a family. But, yes, the family is kind of where we all start from and I think serve as, at the, as the most powerful place where we learn about attachment and uh, we come to know our own minds. Because one thing I haven't mentioned yet that pertains to attachment is, you know, we come to form these bonds by how well we're minded by other people. So right. you know, if we experience people as tuned into us, really trying to understand our internal experience, our intentions, where we're coming from, you know, we're recognized as agents with our own minds, that goes very far in not only helping us learn about our own minds because we uh, learn about our minds from the outside in, um, but it also fosters a sense of confidence that, you know, people are tuning into me and they're tuning into me in a way that's accurate and attuned and responsive. So that ideally would occur in a family. And uh, it also, I think, oftentimes occurs, in my experience and observation, in, in 12-step recovery groups and various other kinds of support groups. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's a lot to the 12-step process that I think uh, mirrors somewhat goes into forming healthy attachments. I mean, step one, for example, in acknowledging that I'm powerless over something it really involves being willing to admit my vulnerability and say, I can't do it all. I need others to help me with this. Um, Ideally, that is occurring in the form of another person who um, can be there for me. And I think a sponsor is a terrific example of someone, ministers, rabbis, uh, friends, uh, other people can serve that role as an important attachment figure. And uh, my colleagues and I, I like to think of it as islands of security. So as we go through life, you know, that we find those islands of security, that all of us find kind of the right person at the right time you know, that we can turn to and, and be there for us. Um, I think those are essential relationships. And for a lot of the people I work with um, who've had you know, maybe difficulties in relationships, difficulties establishing relationships, you know, they may start with a therapist who helps them kind of work on issues and, about relating, and they take that learning and try to apply it uh, to others outside the therapy office. And it really, it it stands to reason, and and, in the next segment we're going to get into your paper, and I I think Mm -hmm. I have a good ground work now and understanding of of why and what you did for this, but the people, we've had 12-step people on talk about no surprise that they found a new family in their 12-step group. So they found trust. Yes. Uh, but the common thread through all these attachments is that they last, and it's continuing. Mm. And it's, uh, you know, I think this will lead into your paper that for recovery to happen in dual diagnosis and anything, it needs to be a long-term thing. And I think we've all gotten over this 30-day model of anything curing anything. Yes, yes. I, and, uh, yes, and, it's a great point. Um, so the, the idea is to, 
is to foster and to continue these attachments, which which yes. are so important yes. in continued recovery. And when you when did you decide to do this research? We probably got a minute or two here. When did you and uh, James Fowler and Mike Yolande are those the two yes, gentlemen? Yes, uh, my my um, good colleague here, Chris Fowler, um, who also had actually um, trained at Austin Riggs and worked there. Mm-hmm. Um, and now is our Associate Director of Research, and Mike Yolandi, who's one of our research assistants, uh, had worked with me on the adult unit. Uh, yeah, I got interested in this because, you know, we were thinking about those patients who, uh, you know, we our, our typical length of stay and recommended length of stay is about six to seven weeks, and we noticed that there was a cohort of patients who were leaving sooner than that and who had substance use disorders and tried thinking about, okay, what can we learn regarding, you know, what we've learned through interviews, what we've learned through our uh, various measures of attachment style and our observations, what can we learn about their particular pattern and way of connecting or not connecting or barely connecting that would inform our understanding of why they don't stay in treatment as long. And so that served as a context for us to kind of delve into the data uh, we have been collecting. We've been collecting data on all of our patients uh, for the past several years and we administer all of our patients' measures every two weeks. Uh, the first set of measures include a whole range of measures of symptomatology from depression, anxiety, levels of functioning, uh, as well as attachment style. And then every two weeks after that, we uh, re-administer measures of um, symptoms and, and look to see if there are changes uh, in level of functioning. So we're going to we take had a, a really good little break here. We're going to work with. And when we come back, sorry, Michael, what, when we come back, we're going to we'll get into this uh, into this paper and right. there's some uh, very profound findings in here and we'll be right back with Dr. Michael Grote of the Menninger Clinic. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. 
You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back. This is John McAndrew. We've been talking with Dr. Michael Grote of the Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas. And listeners, you can get on your computers and look up the Menninger Clinic. You will see it's one of the top five psychiatric hospitals in the universe. And uh, you can see what they do there. <laughs> Michael, we're laying the groundwork now to talk about your study. And we, we talked at the end of the last segment kind of what led you. Uh, you were watching your patients leave treatment early and you wanted to see what does the data show. So once you continue, the paper is in the American Journal on Addictions. It's, it's called, it's titled, Attachment Style and Treatment Completion Among Psychiatric Inpatients with Substance Use Disorders. So uh, what we want to do is, as you're mentioning, John, uh, in summarizing, try to understand what we could learn about personality characteristics that could contribute to uh, treatment outcome. Uh, there have been a lot of studies done looking at uh, age and gender and socioeconomic status and um, how many diagnoses a person has and all these other kind of factors, looking at how all those things bear on how long someone stays in treatment. Mm-hmm. And um, while age and gender and those kind of things don't really show any significant findings, one finding that did uh, exist in the literature and does exist in the literature is that uh, people who uh, stay in treatment longer um, do better. And, you know, that, that kind of intuitively might make some sense. Um, you know, that it takes a while for people to, you know, uh, settle into a treatment program Uh, begin doing the work uh, in a treatment program. And uh, as you and I are aware, um, you know, sometimes 30 days uh, is just not enough. And when you look at a lot of standard psychiatric admissions, um, you know, where people are staying five to seven days, you know, you're working on kind of barely stabilizing folks. Um, We have the advantage here at Menninger of working with people uh, six to eight weeks, uh, the Austin Rig Center, we talked about earlier, uh, they work with people there uh, six months or longer, and so you have a greater opportunity to do more in-depth work. And, uh, you know, recovery really is a uh, long-term process. So, you know, given what we, given what the data suggests, the evidence suggests that uh, longer staying in treatment um, is the most consistent predictor of positive treatment outcomes with people with substance use disorders, we thought about, okay, well, we do a lot of work here at Menninger trying to think about the importance of attachment style and how it bears on the relationship that a given patient may form with right. peers and with the staff. So let's take a look at attachment style and see if it has anything to do with how long people stay in treatment. So uh, we followed 187 consecutive admissions uh, from approximately the fall or October of 2010 up through August of 2011. And uh, we tracked people in particular who came in with uh, a diagnosis of a substance use disorder, alcohol or marijuana, cocaine, heroin, various other kind of substances. And they also had uh, some kind of psychiatric condition. 
Um, admission to Manager does require uh, a psychiatric diagnosis. Most commonly is depression, um, but it can also include anxiety and, and post-traumatic stress disorder and, uh, and eating disorder and various other kind of difficulties. Do, so these do are all people require, who had... Do you require both, uh, both a psychiatric and a substance use diagnosis or just psychiatric? Well, we require uh, psychiatric, okay. but if someone has a substance use disorder, there has to be some other kind of co-occurring uh, psychiatric disorder for admission. So, because we are a primary psychiatric hospital that treats both psychiatric and uh, addictions issues, you know, we do require someone to have a psychiatric um, difficulty, which uh, nearly always we find. Uh, oftentimes, we work with people who have untreated or undertreated uh, psychiatric difficulties. And in fact, we learn that those kind of difficulties, such as undertreated depression, uh, long-standing anxiety vulnerabilities, uh, untreated trauma histories, uh, right. oftentimes bear on their substance use, and uh, is fairly common we run into that. So, you know, again, going back to this uh, piece around relationships, we said, you know, let's think about what we can learn about what are these patients are saying who have co-occurring disorders, what they're what we're learning from interviews, what we're learning from the data about their attachment styles. And one of the things uh, that we looked at was we wanted to know, uh, do people stay here longer um, who are sicker, who have more kind of disorders, uh, more, more diagnoses? Mm -hmm. um, and we want to know, um, you know, what contribution attachment style makes to uh, length of stay. So, we had these 187 individuals. Uh, we ran the data. We looked to see how much the number of diagnoses contributed to length of stay, and it does contribute. But what we found contributed even more, and most of all, I mean, and I'm talking here about looking at attachment style in relationship to age and looking at in terms of how many treatments you've been a part of, et cetera. Attachment style was the strongest predictor of uh, length of stay in treatment. These were people who um, either would leave treatment early or stay the whole course or even longer uh, for treatment. And there were a few trends that stood out. One trend was, one clear trend was, interestingly enough, the more anxious and preoccupied with attachment someone was, the longer they stayed in treatment. So wow. the way to translate that is, the more felt need a given person has for connection, the more felt need a given person has for someone to be available to me to help me with my distress, the, uh, and the more preoccupied they were about their needs for closeness and connection being met, the longer they stayed in treatment. And those are the folks who um, completed the whole course of treatment. They actually um, did best in terms of looking at how they fared. And interestingly enough, in looking at other studies in addition to this one, you know, what we've learned is that the avoidant dismissive style that I mentioned earlier, which is you know, I'm the kind of person who is going to be more self-sufficient, I'm going to rely on my own resources, and uh, I'm going to really kind of deny or minimize that I have a need of others. Uh, those people uh, have the most difficult time remaining in treatment the whole uh, six to eight weeks. Uh, but also the ones who have more difficulty. Um, they, they tend to be harder drinkers. 
they tend to engage in kind of more solitary ways of coping. Mm-hmm. And the folks who manifestly acknowledge uh, their need of other people. So this is one of the first studies that we had seen that looked at how attachment style and kind of one's orientation towards either going closer towards others or distancing from others. Going closer would mean more of the kind of anxious, fearful, preoccupied types. More avoidant, dismissive type would be the more distancing types. Um, this is one of the first studies that looked at how those kind of general uh, patterns affected and interact with how they uh, respond to their teams, how they respond to peers. And, uh, and then looking at some of the individuals, you know, looking at the data and looking at, because we did the data review without um, looking at particular people, you know, you zoom in on some of the individuals involved and talk to the teams about their treatment, you can actually learn from the teams, for example, that well, this person with the more kind of avoid and dismissive style, yeah, she was hard to get to know, more guarded. Uh, she tended to minimize her difficulties. Um, she had trouble collaborating with the team. And then you would talk with the team about other individuals who were described as more oriented towards I need you, um, you know, sometimes a little bit more clingy. Uh, you might hear the teams talk about that. This person was uh, very concerned about the relationship with the team. Actually, they got anxious about whether the team liked them or not, whether they were considered right. to be making good progress, um, and, and that type of thing. Right. So what we've learned through this is that the way people orient themselves, um, how they think about who to turn to in distress, how they manage that, um, really does have a bearing on the kind of relationships, uh, what we call the working alliance, uh, that patients form with teams. And one of the things we know is that in general, uh, working alliance can account for up to 22% of the outcome in treatments. So it's, it's very significant in terms of um, what that means for the kind of relationships that uh, people form with us. You had in the study, you had Axis 1 and Axis 2 yes. patients, right? So you had personality disorders in there, the Axis 2. Yes, we um, do. Was there anything flagged about them where attachment was... a uh, more or less of an issue for them? Was there any difference? Well, that's, that's a very good question. We didn't uh, break it down to look at the particular type of access to, and for those who may not know what access to refers to, access to in the former uh, model of psychiatric diagnosis referred to people with personality disorders, or right. the way I like to think about it is a socio-emotional yeah. difficulty because... You know, personalities, I think, exist in a context. But, um, yeah, we didn't find that personality disorders alone accounted for uh, the outcome. What did account more for the outcome was how that person's attachment style um, was manifest. And we do know that attachment style does have a relationship to particular kind of personality disorders. Um, And so I think there probably is correlation there. I think that would be um, a good future study to look at the relationship between personality styles, personality disorders, and attachment. Right. And just uh, we'll be going to break here shortly, but one other kind of a quick question. And, uh, you know, once a patient comes to you and they're new, in your experience, when do you know what their attachment style is? When does it become evident 
um, so that you can approach it. And I think in the last segment of the show, we'll talk about how you uh, use this information and uh, what their attachment style is to, to help them. But how, how long does that take? And, uh, uh, you know, what is the process for that to, to make a decision? And this is how we're going to approach this particular patient. we got about a minute here. So. Okay. So I'll just say very briefly that um, one thing is uh, we can sometimes tell uh, at the outset, but I'm also aware that when people come to us, they're usually in a state of crisis and very desperate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, desperation can lead all of us human beings to look a variety of ways. Um, and that once that initial kind of desperate phase settles down a bit, um, we tend to see things a little bit more clearly. So what that might look like is, uh, you know, on day one or two, someone might be particularly desperate, a little bit more open for and uh, pleading for help. Maybe they're threatened with the loss of a job or divorce or some other kind of outcome. Right. Uh, but as they settle in a little bit and we try to get to know them better, um, we can start seeing some of the indicators or cues uh, about their kind of orientation. So, for example, someone who you know, is not only desperate coming in but remains kind of at a high-pitched level of desperation and very uh, anxious uh, versus someone who is um, a little more guarded. The more you get to know them, you realize that they're going to take a long time to get to know. Right. We've been talking with Dr. Michael Grote from the Menninger Clinic, and we'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Have you ever taken a minute to think about how your joints work from the outside? Tendons and ligaments are stiff enough to hold our bones together, but flexible enough to allow them to articulate and move. Our joints are not simple hinges, but highly adaptable structures that allow an amazing range of motion. They also allow an amazing adaptability to injury. Find out more by tuning in to Rethinking Orthopedics with Mary J. Rogel, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. It's time to take a new look at the body. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. 
Welcome back. This is our last segment. Um, we've really enjoyed talking with you, Dr. Grote. We've uh, been speaking with Dr. Michael Grote from the Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas. And if you want to go to their website, it's www.menningerclinic.com. That's spelled M-E-N-N-I-N-G-E-R, clinic.com. Uh, Michael, we, mm-hmm. we've really address the attachment and attachment styles and uh, and the data of your research really shows how important that is so using this information now in in your in your work how do you help the the patients to how do you strengthen their attachments and their attachment styles and and how do you teach them to do that and what methods do you use is there a magic pill <laughs> Dr. Crote uh sure I, I know there's not. Yeah, well, I think that oftentimes we wish for one. And in fact, uh, one of the things that I frequently encounter, and that's very human and understandable for a lot of folks coming in, is the wish for, you know, one approach that will solve all the problems, you know, the, whether it's the medication or uh, a particular skill. I have a lot of people asking for tools. You know, please give me a tool, doctor, that will uh, make everything better. And you know, the way I look at it is that there are tools, uh, there are medications, uh, but that all these things are pieces of a puzzle and that you know, real change and recovery is a process that we've touched upon, takes time, and it also involves a lot of different steps and a lot of different things coming together. And so I think broadly speaking, when we think about attachment in particular, you know, we're looking at relationship and... I think that we humans often can become harmed or ill uh, in relationship and that we also can be healed in relationship and uh, experience a lasting recovery in relationship. So um, the way I think about it is how do we introduce people to uh, a relational process that supports healing and recovery? And there are a few ingredients that uh, are really critical to that working well. One is that... um, the people we work with are coming across and coming in contact with staff who are curious about them, who try to get to know their minds, who try to get to understand how they see things, try to get to understand uh, what is creating distress, what function substance use serves, you know, really trying to get to know people through and through. And in this respect, I really like uh, how Carl Menninger, you know, one of the founders of this clinic, wrote about diagnosis. He really thought about the origins of the word diagnosis, which means to know somebody through and through. You know, oftentimes today diagnosis gets equated with uh, a diagnostic label. Uh, I think it's more than uh, a label or some uh, descriptive uh, kind of diagnosis, but it's more about how do I get to know you, how do I get to know your mind. And that experience of recognizing someone, acknowledging them as someone with their own mind and a perspective, that builds trust. And, um, you know, I think that when we are minded well by other people, we, uh, what's facilitated is that we can become more curious about our own minds, saying, well, gee, that's kind of interesting. You know, my, my team members are asking me, you know, what function does drinking serve for you, John? And, and, and Susie, what is that about? And I can be curious about that, too, and, and open up a space to consider myself from other perspectives and... Uh, and maybe come to learn something new about myself. So I think that is really 
that foundation of uh, being curious, uh, trying to learn, uh, opening up spaces to explore, uh, and building trust are, are really foundational to uh, the recovery process. And uh, what I find happens through that is people, you know, we're actually more open as human beings when we're feeling safe and secure. So right. I think learning and healing occur best when we feel safe and secure. And so I think the more we can do to uh, nurture and facilitate safety and security, the more likely we're going to be open to learning, be open to influence. And, uh, you know, I educate people about different attachment styles. That's something that, uh, you know, my colleagues and I do here. Uh, we actually have a course where we teach people about attachment, what it looks like, and talk about how they have rated themselves on these measures and try to look at that in the context of their lives and you know, help people reflect on something and begin to look at themselves through a different lens and then think about uh, what that means going forward. So I think oftentimes, you know, I've found that over the course of, you know, six to eight weeks, I... I've noticed that around the fourth or fifth week, uh, a number of patients described this kind of aha experience where they noticed, you know, I've been kind of the guy who's, you know, run a business or I've been a physician, uh, the go-to person, or I've been a homemaker and I've kind of been the one that's caretaking of others. But I really realized that I've largely not turned other people. I've minimized my own needs. I've neglected my own needs. I really haven't had... Uh, kind of my own needs met. I started drinking too much to kind of cope. And I think people start realizing, you know, how their adaptations uh, either work for them or not and then can begin making some shifts and changes. And I think what I look for in the treatment are those little shifts where, you know, people realize, you know, I really have been more distant from people. And just uh, on Friday I was talking with a gentleman who prided himself on being extremely self-sufficient and, uh, you know, he did that until the stress got too much. I mean, he couldn't manage on his own, and he's learned something about that and uh, about the importance of letting people in and turning other people when, uh, when he's having difficulty. Um, so I think those are the places where uh, people become a little more reflective about you know, how they've been connecting, what that patterns look like, and, and some changes that they can begin making for themselves. Do you see this process and, uh, and the result of your work? Uh, and how, if people were interested in taking that class from you, how would they contact you at Manninger directly? Uh, they can email me uh, at mgroat, M-G-R-O-A-T, at Manninger, M-E-N-N-I-N-G-E-R dot E-D-U, and uh, I'd be happy to send them a syllabus of kind of the things that we review and send them some readings uh, about you know, uh, my colleagues here and I have prepared readings on the basics of attachment, why it matters, some of the research uh, that supports why a secure attachment matters in terms of uh, stress management and life coping. So I'm happy to share that information. Well, my, Michael, we really appreciate you being on the show. Yeah. And Dr. Michael Grote of the Menninger Clinic um, and you can go on their website, MenningerClinic.com, get more information about that or contact Michael uh, about his courses and the information about attachment. And, uh, again, we appreciate your time and uh, all of us at one hour at a time. Uh, wish you the best of luck, and then maybe there will be a book in the future, do you think? Well, there are a few books from some of my colleagues. Uh, Dr. John Allen has written a terrific book 
uh, on attachment and its application to uh, clinical care and just living. Um, so I think there's some really terrific stuff out there. And, yeah, maybe someday I'll write something. But uh, thank you very much for this opportunity and privilege. Well, thank I really you, appreciate Dan, it. And please stay tuned next week to one hour at a time. Bye for now. Appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.